Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the workshop on slipping. My name is Morley. I am one of the technical support people. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thanks, Morley. Hi, everybody. Good morning. My name is Sheila. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I'm so grateful to be here. And, uh, you know, it's no surprise. I've known Morley for 30 years. And it's no surprise that he so humbly starts us off and he says he's one of the tech people. This is, this is actually Morley's role on the board, right? He's the workshops chair. And he has done so much work for this. And he was coming off a vacation meditation situation. And as soon as he got back to town, he had to hit the ground running and he did, putting together a whole team of people. And we're gonna talk about all those people later and thank them. But um, again, it just, it's no surprise that this man, if, if, if somebody had to ask me, what is the prevailing quality about Morley B? That would be the first thing that would come to mind is humility. And so thank you, Morley, for everything that you've done. And I'm just really excited about this day. Me too. to be here, everybody. So again, so it's official. We are here on our big book workshop uh, about chronic slipping and going, going to go through the steps in the book. And we have a whole jam-packed day for you. And I think probably the schedule has been put up in the chat. It has. We have a very specific... Um, things we're going to cover in terms of, of step work in the book. I'm going to have a great conversation all day long. There are going to be exercises that you're going to be doing because this is not a retreat situation where you're just going to be listening to me talk all day, but there's going to be really exciting exercises and things that I found that people have really enjoyed. And some of these things are things that sponsors pointed me toward. Other things are things that I found that work well when I've done retreats and um, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So I'm just very excited. So be prepared, right? So make sure that you have your big book with you. And I'm sure you probably do and have a notepad and ideally a notepad with some kind of a pen. And if you had some kind of a highlighter, that can always be useful as well. But um, again, just very, very grateful to be here. And so just as we're getting started here, we're going to kick off probably at about 9.15, might start a little bit earlier, depends on, on the time it takes to kind of go through some of these rudimentary things at the beginning. Um, so one of the things, and I think you, we've already experienced that, I just want you to know that I really honor your time. I honor your time, everybody who's showing up here. I honor the time of all the tech people who are involved because it takes a lot of behind the scenes people to put this together. And once I get the list, I'm going to go through those names a couple of times during the course of the day. And, um, <clears throat> and I know I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know, but if you want to feel a part of in Overeaters Anonymous and you don't for whatever reason, and again, we'll talk about different things all day long, but the quickest way to get yourself feeling a part of is just jump in and do service. Just jump in and do service. And there are a lot of people who are doing that behind the scenes on this. And I'm just very, very grateful for all of us. We're all just doing service here, just in different ways. But um, um, so, do be aware, it's a big book workshop. So we're gonna hit different things in the big book. We're not gonna be screen sharing pages, but what I'll do is I'll point you toward pages when we're getting there specifically as we go through, when we're talking about the 
the, the different places and the steps and things. And I just had started something. I'm very, very excited when we get going on step one about an hour from now after I tell you my story. But because um, there's something interesting that kind of landed for me in terms of step one in the big book, communication. But um, so you've got your pen, you've got your notebook, you've got your ready when we do those workshops. And as you experienced this morning, when you see that schedule, um, I think the way this kind of thing works the best, not only when you're doing it live, and this is my first time doing this, covering all this material in the course of a Zoom workshop. That's why it's an all day thing because normally I'm doing this over the course of a weekend. But what I find, especially on a Zoom workshop, it works best when these things kind of run like a Swiss watch. So when you see on that schedule that something is happening at 9.15, for instance, that's when we're gonna start, I'm gonna start talking about my story. It will either happen at 9.15 or earlier but it will never happen later. But specifically when we get into break situations, because as you see, there's different breaks and everything is scheduled. There is a lunch break that happens from one to 2 p.m. And there are two 15 minute breaks, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. Those will be hard, fast stops and starts. And that's so that you know, and you can depend on that. So this way you can look at your watch or look at your phone and you'll just know that, oh, I'm, I, I, Perhaps I can't be here all day, but I want to make sure I'm here for the step 10 part. You'll know that steps nine through 12 are happening in the afternoon and you'll know exactly when they are there from, I think it's from two to four. So I just want you to know that I really honor your time and I've got my phone here and on one of the breaks, I'll also grab an iPad plus I'm a, I'm a watch wear. So I will be absolutely fastidious about sticking to that schedule, right? And so, um, and we have some, some great timers people are put in place. And there's, again, specific times that I know timings are happening and I have it all printed out on a schedule next to me. So again, I just want you to know, I really honor your time and we will stay close to that schedule. We will be on that schedule. It will not deviate. Um, the other thing I want to talk about this in terms of etiquette, right? So there are some people who are going to be watching, right, as you are already experiencing, right, the way that, that you can communicate via chat, you will be able to talk to any and everybody who is uh, the host or a co-host. So all of our tech people are co-hosts. That just means that they have the ability to do certain behind the scenes things. If you haven't done that yet for one of your meetings and supporting your secretary or something, um, that's, that's a great way to jump in and do service, right? And you just find out about these behind the scene things. But all of those people, including Morley as the host and including me as your leader, we all have host or co-host status. So you can communicate with us at any time in the chat. You know, we, we're, we're, you're never sure when you're doing this kind of a thing, how big it's going to be or, and it's just, it's, it's too many moving pieces to try and get it set up in something like this, where people are communicating with one another. But do be aware, we are going to open that up during the chat. I mean, not during the chat, during the lunch, which will happen from 1 to 2 p.m. So you'll be able to to connect with each other on the chat, right? If there are things you're trying to reach out or or you're looking for a sponsor or something like this, because this is not that kind of a workshop. It wasn't necessarily set up that way. But if you want to get those kind of communications going, you'll be able to do that in the lunch hour between 1 and 2 p.m. Okay? Sheila, excuse me. Did you know your video is off right now? Uh, thank you. No, I did not know that. Thank you. you more. Um, <clears throat> thank you. Thanks for the heads up. So, um, so you'll be able to communicate again between 1 and 2 p.m., okay? The other thing to be aware, we are recording this. 
um, because there are a lot of great things that are going on. We're so lucky. We're so blessed in Overeaters Anonymous. It is such a nice problem of abundance that we have all these incredible things that are going not over only all over the United States, but there are great things going on all over the world. So people, some people wanted to participate and couldn't, weren't able to do that. We are recording this as we recorded one that we had two weeks ago in the Los Angeles intergroup and those will be available on our website and keep in, in touch with me or you can keep in touch with the Los Angeles intergroup and we'll keep you apprised when we get this live. But we will be recording this and to make it easier for us, we're gonna be recording it in the four different segments. So we'll record, it, record uh, the segment before the break, the segment between the, the first break and lunch, that is the second segment. And then, so it'll be easier for you too, if you're listening to things, you don't have to get it started. And if you're interested in one part, it'll just make it much more manageable for you. And it makes it easier for people as we are downloading this or whatever that procedure is when you get a recording and, and get it up where people can access it. Um, there, was a, there was a communication that came through and I wanted to make sure that I address this and I'm glad I have plenty of time here to do this. So this is called a, a chronic slippers workshop, right? And I've been doing this workshop since 2008. That was when I started. And you'll hear about this when you hear my story, but I've been in Overeaters Anonymous since 1988. So I've been here 32 years, but I only have 20 years of abstinence. So I was a slipper for a dozen years. Now, what happened for me is at some point, and I'm, I'm in, I started out in Al-Anon, I'm getting a little bit into my story here, but I started out in Al-Anon in 1986. I got clean and sober in 1987. And then I found my way to Overeaters Anonymous. And again, I'll save that for when I get to my story. But because I was a slipper here, I wasn't in, in the mother program, but because I was a slipper here, once I got abstinent, I realized that I wanted to be of service to people who were chronic slippers, not because I had any idea that I was doing anything that you know, that Morley couldn't do, or Kathy couldn't do, or Pat couldn't do. It wasn't anything like that, but I did have my ash. I did have my experience, strength, and hope as a slipper. So I went to my sponsor and said, I'd like to be of service to chronic slippers. Chronic slippers, that term actually is something that Bill Wilson coined, and he talked about it in a Grapevine article. So the Grapevine, the AA Grapevine started in the 40s. So I don't know if this communication came through in the 40s or the 50s, but Bill Wilson considered himself a chronic slipper. And often referred to himself in that way. And it wasn't a pejorative term. And again, you'll hear more about this as we are going through the course of the day. And you'll certainly hear about it in my story. But it's not any kind of a moral issue at all. Not at all. <laughs> again, we'll, 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 we'll talk more about that later. But, I, but, but there, there was a, a person or two who, who had some concern about the labeling of this workshop in, in referring to people as chronic slippers. And again, just reminding you that the founder of, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous is the one who coined the term in an AA Grapevine article. And that was how he referred to himself. And it's also how I refer to myself. And Morley, I think you're, I'm kind of hearing some background, I think from you. Um, but at, at any rate, yeah, definitely. But um, I just wanna make sure you know that it is a, this was an attempt, the whole process was started as an attempt to be of loving service to people who like me had struggled to get abstinent. If we were all in a room, now we've got close to 200 people here. If we were all in a room together and we could all see each other, I would ask 
anybody who got abstinent on their first day coming into Overeaters Anonymous to raise his or her hand. And I got to tell you, out of 200, if there were going to be five people, I'd be surprised. I know one time I led a retreat with about 75 people and there wasn't a single person. Um, it's Those people are very, very rare who come in and get it right away. Most of us do what I did. I hope most people don't take 12 years to do it like I did. But I, I do have a friend who's been trying to, to pull this together for 40 years. So do be aware of that. This is all about the love. Everybody is welcome here. Every experience is welcome here. It is not, there is nothing somebody needs to do in Overeaters Anonymous at all other than to show up and if you are open to it, let yourself be open to the love here. But there is no requirement to be abstinent. There is no requirement to weigh a certain amount, to eat a certain way, to not eat certain foods, <clears throat> nothing like that at all. And that was what was fueling me in terms of getting going with these workshops way back when. So we have just about another minute and a half here. The other thing I want to throw out, <clears throat> you all have the benefit of being able to um, stay muted, right? To cut your video at any time and, um, and still participate in any way you want. I don't have that luxury. So part of the things that will be useful as you get going on exercises, that will give me an opportunity to do two things. Take bathroom breaks once in a while, right? And I'll still be able to carry my computer with me and hear you and, um, and be ready to come back on at the end of that time after we do those exercises, because those are also timed. But I also had a, a, a major back injury that, that happened in the last couple of months. So at various times, I might need to cut my video just so that I can stand up and do a little Qigong, do a little Tai Chi or something while I keep talking, but it will be simply so that I don't end up in a, in a really precarious position at the end of this, this day, right? So um, that's what we've got there. And I've also had some scattered problems with my, with my internet needing to cut videos sometimes to boost audio, but it's been pretty good this week. So I think we are good to go. So um, it is 9.15. And I am going to jump into my story. If you have any questions about anything that I shared, put them in the chat and we will get to those our, as our, our, our techs are picking that kind of stuff up and we'll, we'll address those issues. But again, my name is Sheila. I'm a compulsive overeater. <clears throat> I am delighted to be here. And as I said, I've been in Overeaters Anonymous uh, since 1988 and uh, have 20 years of abstinence. And how my whole journey started for me. Um, I'm going to just kind of get you to the cursory thing. Then we're going to go back and pick up how this all happened. But I was in um, the seventh year of my four-year undergraduate degree in college. And I had found my way into Al-Anon. I was in a group therapy situation. And about a year into Al-Anon, I realized it was probably time for me to start paying attention to my own drinking and drug use rather than worrying about the people in my family. And so I came in, ended up in, in, uh, in the mother program in Alcoholics Anonymous. And about three months in, I turned to the woman next to me and I said, do you think people can have a problem with sugar like you have a problem with alcohol? 
She said, absolutely. Go to Overeaters Anonymous. And my top weight is 200 pounds. And I weighed 200 pounds at that time. I was 24 years old. And I came to my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting. And my whole journey, 12-step journey, started in Lansing, Michigan. <clears throat> so I was largely influenced by the 12-step the program of Dr. Bob Smith from Ohio, right? And their philosophy was is that you go through the steps over and over and over again. In contrast to the New York cohort who said, no, you're going to work what would amount to uh, steps one through nine, and then you'll spend the rest of your life doing 10, 11, and 12. Bill reversed himself on that, and he talks about it, and it comes of an age, because for a long time, Bill Wilson thought you only needed to do one fourth step in a lifetime, whereas Bob Smith was like, mm-mm, mm-mm, a lot more than that. And again, me having come from Michigan, I, I was birthed into this whole philosophy that I was going to be going through these steps over and over again. And that really served me. And we'll get to that, some of that stuff later. But at any rate, so I now am on a, it's a Saturday morning and I'm, I'm, I'm wandered into my first Overeaters Anonymous meeting. And I did not know how this worked. <clears throat> I knew in Alcoholics Anonymous that you didn't drink. So I figure Overeaters Anonymous, I don't know, maybe you don't eat. And again, I weigh 200 pounds. I, I certainly wasn't gonna starve to death. So I showed up at this 11 a.m. meeting, not having eaten and go through the hour long meeting. And there were about five of us in the room and it was in a hospital. And I remember it was being led by a beautiful African-American woman who was just had just completed her doctorate in accounting, which I again found so impressive being in that seventh year of my four year undergraduate degree. And she was beautiful and she was at a healthy body weight, but I just remember she was very warm. That's what I remember, right? So after the meeting, I had identified myself as a newcomer because I, I knew how this worked in terms of 12-step programs. Remember, I had some experience now going on in a couple of other programs, but this was, I knew this was my primary program. I was real clear about that. I'd had an issue with, with sugar from when I was very young. I have a, a filling in just about every molar in my mouth. And so afterwards I had questions and she, she stayed uh, to answer those questions. And I asked what abstinence was and how this worked. And she said, well, is there a food that you have a problem with? And I said, I definitely have a problem with sugar. Definitely have a problem with sugar. She said, okay, a lot of us do. She said, do you think it would be possible for you today? Because I identified that I had not eaten anything. She said, oh, we got to take care of that. But she said, do you think it would be possible for you to eat three meals today with no sugar? Now, I can't remember what I answered. And what else I can't remember is anything beyond that part of the conversation. And I don't know if that's because I just went into shock. I don't know if it was something like that or, or what. But I can't remember what went beyond that. And the reality is, and I know we probably all know this, but we would never want to have that kind of a conversation with a newcomer and not have it go beyond that. We would never want to do that. And I'm actually happily going to give her the benefit of the doubt and say that the question, that the question, it didn't end there, that the conversation went beyond that. I'm going to actually absolutely say that's how it went. But the truth is, 
even if it didn't go beyond that, even if that was the last communication I had from her, because I never saw that woman again in an Overeaters Anonymous meeting in Lansing, Michigan ever again. And I don't know if, again, that was she had completed her education and she, you know, left town, but I know I never saw her again. But even if the conversation never went beyond that, the responsibility would have been mine. Because I had, at that point, I had 15 months in Al-Anon and I had a year in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I knew how this worked. I knew how this worked. I knew that you, I knew that if you, I'd already learned and it had been communicated to me, if I come to 12-step programs, I'm going to feel better. If I work the steps, I'm going to get better. So I knew how this worked. So even if she didn't say anything else, I knew that my responsibility in Overeaters Anonymous was to get a sponsor and start working the steps. I knew I left that meeting. And so now it's what, 1230, getting close to one o'clock in the afternoon and I'm hungry. And I thought, huh, okay, no sugar, three meals a day. So I went to a restaurant, ordered a meal. And I can remember when it, the, the waitress set the meal down because I'd been to this place before. And anytime I was eating there before, it was kind of a binge type situation. But I remember I had that meal in front of me and it was a breakfast type meal, despite the fact it was one o'clock and you know the little glass of juice here and this on the plate and that and the other things. And I remember looking down and I thought, huh, okay. So this is my first meal. I ate my meal. I then went out and I sat in my car and I thought three meals a day, no sugar. No, it's gotta be more complicated than that. And for the next dozen years, I proceeded to complicate it. Now, the one thing that in the midst of that, that I did write though, and I did it within a couple of weeks, I got my first sponsor in Overeaters Anonymous. But unfortunately, I just wasn't ready to put the food down. I wasn't ready to stop eating sugar and I wasn't ready to stop doing the quantity eating. So it was February of 1988 and I weighed 200 pounds, but I did get one piece of direction from that first sponsor. And thank God I was willing to follow that piece of direction because I'm thoroughly convinced that's why I have not weighed 200 pounds since February of 1988. I never went back up to my top weight again. It took me a dozen years to get abstinent. And I'll talk about that but it's because I followed this one piece of direction that I got from that sponsor. And that direction was work the steps regardless of what's going on with your eating. Because what became clear a couple of weeks into this, once I started working with her again, is I wasn't ready to stop eating sugar and I wasn't ready to stop doing the quantity eating. I just wasn't ready to feel those feelings. And I had a lot of feelings that were, were coming up based on the family I was raised in. I was raised in an alcoholic family. Both my parents um, were, came from alcoholic families. So neither my father nor my mother were an alcoholic. They both had eating disorders. My mother was a compulsive overeater. My father ended up in a, 
if he didn't end up, if it wasn't an anorexic situation, it was, it was dangerously close. But they both came from alcoholic homes. Both had alcoholic fathers. So I was affected by alcoholism because my parents were affected by alcoholism and alcoholism travels south. And it is just that ism, right? That I self me. It's all about me and it's all about my pain and uh, the twin devils that I think inevitably show up in any kind of an addictive situation, which is this idea of perfectionism and a, and a challenge with communication. So, um, and that was certainly the case for me. But I got that direction from my sponsor that even though I wasn't ready to stop doing quantity eating and I wasn't ready to stop eating the sugar because I didn't know how to deal with that pain from my alcoholic home, there was a lot of bad stuff that went on in my home, a lot of raging. My mother was a rager. She would throw things. She would throw dishes against the wall. You can remember my mother pulling all the china out of her china cabinet and slamming it on the floor. And I can, I can still remember the crash of that stuff and, you know, like little pieces, you know, kind of flying off and stuff. And she was, as she was crashing it, she was saying, you know, I don't have anything nice. I don't have any, you know, even my China, it's horrible China. I thought, well, I, I guess this is one way to get yourself potentially in a situation where you're going to get new China, I guess, right? But just the insanity, that kind of craziness. And I was molested. I'm the youngest of five children. Um, I was probably an unplanned pregnancy. All my siblings are much closer in age. And there were two men on a, few, on a number of occasions. I was arrested when I was five years old. And then the more egregious behavior happened when I was 10 years old. And that was a huge, huge thing in my life in terms of putting me on a trajectory. Because again, I'm the youngest of five, have two older brothers, two older sisters. My oldest brother's deceased. He died of diabetes. But um, neither of my sisters were molested. And it's like we came from different families. It's, it's, we're totally different people. I mean, they knew how to knit, they know how to sew, they know how to do a whole host of things. And they always had each other. Once I left the third grade, I was never in school with a sibling again. And I, I had that built-in shame then that was already happening. The shame was already happening because I came from an alcoholic home. But then putting that sexual trauma on top of it and my dad had three overweight daughters and he didn't like it. And he was always very vocal about it. And he'd be vocal about it publicly. He'd always say very shaming things in front of other people. Um, and I got the worst of it. My oldest sister, he'd throw a baseball at her. She'd throw three back. My middle sister, she worked in his business. So he wasn't going to give her too much grief about her weight. So I was an easy target and I got a lot of it. And again, it all was stacking up all this shame and pain. And I just had nowhere to go with it except to land in the food. So even though my sisters and I were all overweight, my binging and my eating was on a completely different level than theirs. And it always was. That, that never changed. But um, it was all just pain. And it all really became clear once I started working with that sponsor. I was not equipped to handle those feelings. I just wasn't especially behind the sexual trauma. And I'm so grateful that, you know, in Overeaters Anonymous, the, the, the new book just finally came out in July. And uh, it's talking about body image and sexual trauma. And I think there's one other component to it. I, 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 my story is one of the stories in that book. And um, I, I'm just so grateful that we are, we are 
having this conversation and really bringing this to light. And I got to tell you, it's really cool because Overeaters Anonymous is at the forefront. Now, quite obviously, apparently there are 700 different programs. I don't even know how there can be 700 different pathologies, right? But that utilize the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Apparently there's 700 different groups. And I'm a member of about, I'm actually a member of five different groups. And I've, you know, dipped my toe in other ones, just checking out different things, open meetings and stuff. But um, as far as I know, Overeaters Anonymous is at the forefront in terms of being in this conversation about sexual trauma. I think it's rampant <laughs> the world over because I'm not on, I'm not a fringe member in any of my 12 step uh, programs. And so I talk to a lot of people and do a lot of service and listen. And I just, I'm like a sponge. I just take in everything. I'm just so excited to, to learn everything that you all have to teach me. Right. And all the things that I didn't get a chance to do in my childhood, I just, I want to do like, I just, I, I just want to be unstoppable in 12 step programs and take full advantage of all of your wisdom, everything you have to offer. But we are having a conversation here in Overeaters Anonymous that I'm not hearing anywhere. And I'm certainly not hearing it in the mother program. And I know because I've been in situations where I've talked about it when I'm leading meetings there, big meetings, and uh, had some situations where people really respond to it and other situations where people just don't want to talk about it. As though if I'm leading an AA meeting of 400 people, as if I'm going to be the only person there who was molested. <laughs> Not a chance. Not a chance, right? So it's just really cool what we are doing here in Overeaters Anonymous. It really is. And that it culminated in, and is part of a book. And, and I'm just, I just, I, I love OA. I got to tell you. Just gonna, just warning now. I'm gonna I'm pre be prepared to listen to me wax poetic about Overeaters Anonymous and 12-step programs in general all day long. But I am so grateful that I had that very, very wise sponsor in 1988, three years before the first version of the uh, OA 12 and 12 came out. We'll talk about that later. Why I'm referencing that, but um, that I had this very wise sponsor who said. Even if the food stuff isn't coming together for you now, you just keep working the steps. She, the way she described it to me, she was talking about the A, B, and C that we read at the end of how it works, right? A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. C, that God couldn't would if he were sought. But pay special attention to that B, right? Alcoholic could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. C, God couldn't would if he were sought. In no place does it say there, okay, once you're going to this many meetings or working the steps or doing this or whatever, it's all going to come together. It doesn't say that. It says that no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. That's why if this isn't coming together, and I'm going to jump back in my story here, but I just want to throw this out here. If this isn't coming together for you in terms of abstinence, in that we are talking about chronic slipping, right? Whether you are somebody who is chronically slipping yourself, whether you sponsor slippers and you don't have any experience with that, or whether you just want to be of service to the people who are sitting in the back of the rooms and take a look around. They're sitting in the back of the rooms. There are plenty of people here who believe that for whatever reason, they have not been invited to the party. Right. So whatever it is that is bringing you here today. Right. 
do be aware that if it's not coming together for you right now, it's not because you're with the wrong sponsor. It's not because you need to be sponsored by somebody who's going to take you through the steps in the big book, or you need to be in this fellowship, or you need to be in this one where they weigh them, where they weigh and measure. You need to be in this one where they call it this, or they use this terminology. It's not about any of that stuff. It's not. Because A, B, and C, probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, our compulsion, right? It's not about that. It's not. And what it was about in my experience is going through the steps over and over, putting myself around really loving people. I remember I, you know, when I ended up in California, Morley is one of the first people I met. We used to go to a meeting. And I can remember one time having a great conversation with him when I was official and I was moving to California and leaving Michigan and I had to surrender my Michigan driver's license. And I was so traumatized by it. And I remember Morley saying, yeah, I mean, I remember the corner we were on in, in Westwood. I, I, I don't know if we'd gone to lunch or what, or tea or something, coffee. But I remember him saying, yeah, but you're actually going to get a California one though, right? Like you're going to let go of this, but you're going to, you're going to bring on this. So surrounding myself by people like Morley and the hundreds, perhaps thousands of people over the years, right? Um, and working, going through those steps over and over and over again, I started feeling safe enough that I could put down the food. And my whole food journey started, I was either four or five. And my mother used to take me again. My siblings were all much closer in age. And uh, we were lower middle class. My father had gone to school on the GI Bill. He had started his own business. He had some real success with it later and unfortunately brought that, that house tumbling down on him because he just couldn't sit with that kind of experience, that kind of successful experience. That was the effect of alcoholism on him. But um, my mother used to take me around with her all the time and we would go to this grocery store and he was a family friend that owned this grocery store. And this was when grocery stores were maybe four times the size of a 7-Eleven, right? Wasn't, we're not talking Costco. But um, I remember this guy and it was his grocery store and he was the butcher because he would always have the, I remember the butcher's apron. I sometimes, you know, there would be blood on this apron. And he'd be in the front of the store with me where there was the candy counter. And um, he would give me inappropriate French kisses in exchange for candy bars. And, um, and this happened on a number of occasions on, on these shopping trips with my mother. And I have no idea why nobody ever, nobody ever showed up to check out. There's only one cash register in this store, right? Nobody ever came through. I don't know where my mother was. And I can remember the day, I don't know if this happened seven, eight, nine, ten 10 times, but I can remember the day I thought, well, I don't like this. And I know I like those Milky Way candy bars. So I'm just going to start stealing those things. And so I did. So stealing was a huge part of my story. Huge part of my story. And most of the things I ever stole in my lifetime, uh, before I came at 12-step programs and, you know, somebody grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and said, knock that off, right? But most of the things that I ever stole were food items, right? But it started there. And what was interesting to me, and then five years later, 
there was the more egregious um, sexual trauma, right? By interestingly enough, he was this guy's cousin. I don't know. Maybe it runs in the family. So let's just call them Lenny and Morley, right? These two guys. Not Morley. Marvin. I'm just staring because Morley's on my screen, hence the M. So I, I always call him Lenny and Marvin, right? So those are pseudonyms for these two guys. Two, two men who, and we'll hear about this later, who ended up on my first four-step and uh, were loved and forgiven. And I just had a holy experience. I mean, it's just really powerful here what happens in terms of the 12-step programs. But Lenny and Marvin, and the more egregious was with Marvin five years later. But it's interesting is, um, uh, so this happened at five. And at seven years old, my oldest brother, who was 15, got diagnosed with um, diabetes. And my parents, fairly unsophisticated people, didn't know what to do, but they thought, okay, so I've got a diabetic kid now. We're just going to get rid of all the sugar in the house. Except we have a real problem at this point because I've already established that I'm willing to steal. I've already established this that I am going to, when, when, there's, when I need sugar, I'm gonna steal it. Cause I'd already, that had already started when I was five. Well, let's just call it five. I always say, I don't know if I was four or five. Let's call it five. I'd already established this two years before when I want sugar, I'm gonna steal it. And now all of a sudden, all the sugar is out of my home. I'm in trouble. I'm an addict and I need this stuff and I need it like I need oxygen. And, um, and then three years later, the more egregious sexual trauma was happen, happening where I'm you know, being driven around in this guy's Buick. I have no idea. I have no idea how, I, how this happened. I mean, there's, there's six other people in my house, two parents and four older siblings. How did he get me out of the house? How did that happen? I mean, did he come and pick me up? Did, I mean, did my parents say, okay, have her back by nine. She's got school tomorrow. I have no idea. That's alcoholism. That's the pathology. That's what we're talking about here. Just in case I think that my eating disorder is all about my food or what I weigh or what size I wear or anything like that, it's all about the pain and the pathology. And that I had no place to talk about this because it's wild. This didn't really land for me until about 10 years ago. And this was, I'd already been lead, you know, lead, doing workshops and stuff. I hadn't started doing retreats and things, but I'd been in conversation about this quite a bit. And all of a sudden it kind of landed for me. I thought it might not have even been 10 years ago. Maybe it was five years ago, but all of a sudden I thought, where was my mother? Where was my mother in that grocery store? Where was my mother when Marvin was coming to pick me up five years later? Where was anybody in my family? And it never once occurred to me when this happened to me, when it happened in the grocery store, when it happened five years later, it never, but especially in the grocery store, because think about it, we're going to get, we're going to leave that grocery store with bags of groceries. I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to drive home with my mother. It never occurred to me to say anything to my mother about what was going on. It never occurred to me, just never even came up. That's the pathology. That's the pain. That's what this is about. It's not about sugar and flour and quantity eating. Those are symptomatic, but it's the pain and the pathology. That's what this is about. And for me, again, it was intertwined with sexual trauma, which just made it that much more problematic to get myself 
out from underneath that kind of shame, especially with the dad who was saying the mean stuff. In junior high, I was kind of a, I, I was a, a normal weight. I must have been a normal weight. I was a cheerleader. And in my first year, I was the one that went on top. Now, by the time I got to ninth grade, I was a base, right? I was the one that's leaning over and the little girls are going to jump on my back. Smaller, smaller uh, girls are going to jump on my back. But, and, and that was because I, I, I went through, you know, I started menstruating and so I put on weight and there was just, there's just kind of textbook stuff that happens if you're dealing with, with sexual trauma and it's, it's, it's intertwined with the, the copious amount of sugar eating that I was doing. And again, I did a lot of stealing. I was stealing stuff from the, the candy bars from the store. I would blow through my Halloween candy. I would get into my siblings. My best friends were twins. They were thin. They would still have Halloween candy at, at, by Valentine's Day, not me. I was done by about November 3rd, 4th, 5th. I was done. I was certainly done with mine. And I was working my way through my siblings candy. So um, I, I just, it, it, it all came to a head once I started menstruating. And that was when I started putting on weight. And then all of a sudden I get to high school and I'm the, the, the fat girl in high school with all the, the pain and the, the name calling. And I was too overweight to be a cheerleader in, in high school. Uh, so I, you know, went on a different trajectory there. I, my, my best friends, again, those twins I referenced were thin and there was a, you know, whole popular group of thin girls and they didn't, they weren't the ones who ostracized me. I'm the one who took myself out of it and said, oh no, 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 I'm not worthy. Why? I was believing the stuff my father was telling me, telling me that my value as a young woman had everything to do with what I weighed. The lie and the father of lies for all of us. Who we are and our value has nothing to do with what we weigh. Nothing. Nothing. But that wasn't what I heard. And that wasn't what I was learning. And that certainly wasn't what I believed. So I, I'm now the overweight girl in high school. I head into college. And it, it starts kind of getting intermingled. I started smoking cigarettes. I started... Uh, you know, drinking a little bit. I was never a, a, a great drinker. I, you know, I, I would throw up. So I didn't, I wasn't a great drinker, but I, I certainly gave it a good run. But I was a pothead. But I always say, if you were to line up a bottle of tequila, a joint, wine of cocaine, carton of Marlboro Greens, and a hot fudge sundae, I would run to the hot fudge sundae. I still would, hands down, always would. That has always been my thing. So, um, but it was all kind of getting mixed together in a real problematic way in, uh, in, in college here. And it was affecting my relationships. And I was already somebody who was not socialized well. I did not know how to connect with other people. And it talks about that in the big book, right? It says that, that uh, uh, it says that, the, you know, our core issue is selfishness and we don't know how to, to form a relationship with another human being. And in the 12 and 12, it talks about how we don't need know how to have a relationship with, with God. And they're both one and the same to me. But I certainly, I was ill-equipped. I just did not have any tools. And it's so obvious that I didn't have those tools because something painful was happening to me at five years old, chronically, and I did not know how to say it out loud to my mother. So that was my, that was my life right there. That was absolutely how it showed up for me. So then I end up in Al-Anon, end up in AA, and I end up in this first OA meeting. And then I get this direction from this sponsor to just start working the steps. And the one good thing about coming from an alcoholic home 
is I have a real healthy respect for authority figures, real healthy respect for authority figures. I don't argue with sponsors or cops. I just don't argue with people here. And I did not have the experience of coming from a home where there was love and validation and, and comfort and warmth. I don't, I didn't have that experience. And I felt that the first time I came in a 12 step room. And, and so when I ended up in Overeaters Anonymous, it was not a debate as to whether or not I was going to stay here. I was, I, I was in, I felt your love in a way that I never felt it in my home, but I didn't have the confidence. I certainly didn't know that it was unconditional love. Cause again, I wasn't getting that in my home. I wasn't okay. Cause I was overweight. My dad didn't like that. So and that was just an appearance thing. I felt it in lots of other ways that I wasn't acceptable. So I wasn't going to take a chance in the 12-step rooms that I was going to do something that you were going to get pissed off at me and ask me to leave. I wasn't going to take that chance. So when you asked me to do something, I was like, I'm on it. I'm on it. Right? And um, so when this sponsor said to me, because it was obvious a couple weeks in, once we got going, that again, I wasn't ready to stop doing the quantity eating. Sheila, 945. And I wasn't ready to stop eating sugar. It was painfully obvious. And she said, just keep going. That's a God job. And she pointed out that A, B, and C that we just talked about. She said, I can't fix this for you. You definitely can't fix it for you. But I can't fix it for you. Nobody in the rooms here can fix it for you. Right? This is a God job. But while you are powerless over food, you're not powerless over doing the work. So do the work. So I just followed direction. It didn't make any sense to me. I knew in AA, I, you know, you stop drinking and you work the steps, but I just followed direction. And I'm so grateful I did that because here's what happened. Again, remember I came from, from Michigan. So we're just going to go through the steps over and over again. So there was never any pressure when I got to a four step. It was like, oh, you know, I got to do the perfect four step. I've never had that issue ever. Because I always knew if I didn't catch it on this round, I was going to catch it on round two, right? Or I was going to catch it on the next four step in another program, right? Because you just kind of see, it's like polka dots, like the polka dots on my shirt, right? Like there's always going to be another one. So there was no pressure, but I just followed direction. So I'm now a couple years into Overeaters Anonymous and I'm still doing quantity eating. I'm still eating sugar, but I've been through the steps. I don't know, maybe a time or two. I don't know how long it took me to get through the steps. I'd certainly been through them at least once. And I was, you know, cycling through again. And I'm at a family event. I'm now 26 years old. And remember, I came in, my top weight's 200 pounds. I weigh about, yeah, I just was at the doctor's last week and I was 130. I usually stay, you know, I bounce between 130 and 135. And, um, uh, and that, that's the least interesting transformation that's happened to me here. Let me tell you, that's the least interesting transformation. But I, um, I, uh, and it's just, I mean, it's just so, it's just so wild how this, you know, how this stuff all goes, but I'm at a family event. I'm 26 years old and I now weigh 180 pounds. So I've been here for a couple of years. I'm still not abstinent, but something's working. Something's going on because I don't weigh 200 pounds anymore. I'm 180. And I walk by my father and somewhere there's a picture of me and I can see myself. I can see what I'm wearing. And, you know, I remember it like, like, like that. And I walk by my dad and he says, 
Okay. I can see that you've lost some weight, but you've got a lot more to go. Don't let up. And I turned around and I said, no more. That's it. It's over. You do not talk to me about my weight anymore. It's over. And it was never appropriate for my dad to talk to me about my weight. Ever. That qualifies in, in uh, uh, you know, DSM-5. That, that qualifies as sexual trauma right there. It's, it's, that's not a pro it was never appropriate for him to say that. And I said, that's it. It's over. And my dad never talked to me. And, you know, everybody, you know, because there were, you know, five or six people around and people kind of turned and looked and, like, oh, my God, you know, because nobody talked to my dad like that. But I wasn't trying to be disrespectful. It was really fire meeting fire. Now, nobody can tell me that that's not recovery. That was a direct result of two years in Overeaters Anonymous following sponsor direction. Because I did not come up with a plan. It wasn't, oh, I'm going to keep eating and working the steps here. I was following sponsor direction. And for the love of God, I could not stop the quantity eating and I couldn't stop eating sugar. Why? I was not ready to feel those kind of feelings that were inevitably going to result growing up in the kind of home I did, the violence, right? There was a, because I didn't talk about that. We got, you know, we got belted real good at my house. And, um, and the sexual stuff and the, the but, but I always say of all the bad stuff that happened in my home, the worst is that nobody talked to anybody. Nobody knew how to say, hey, Morley, can we talk about what happened at the wedding? Because you said this, I heard this. Is this what you meant? It hurt my feelings. Is that, can we talk about that? Nobody knew how to do that. Nobody still knows how to do that. They really don't. And the only reason I know is because you taught me, right? But because I was following that direction for the two years, something was changing with my food, hence the, the weight slowly coming off. But I finally got to stand up to the bully. I finally got to stand up to him. And he never talked to me about my weight again. Now, I still ate. I kept, kept eating for another 10 years. I wasn't done, right? And, uh, and what finally happened there <clears throat> is um, I had, uh, I'd, I'd gotten a major health diagnosis. I'd gotten a, 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 a diagnosis in 1994. And um, my doctor at the time said, oh, I, I, don't, I don't know. And he was the world, at the time, he was the world's foremost researcher on this at, at UCLA, this doctor of mine. And he said, well, I don't know anything about this. I know that food's going to, you know, plays into it though. And, you know, but I don't know anything about food. No, no doctor does if he's going to be straight with you. He said, go to a registered dietitian. You want to go to a registered dietitian in the state of California, not a nutritionist. <clears throat> Anybody in the state of California can call themselves a nutritionist, but to be a registered dietitian, there's licensure, right? So he said, go to an RD. So I did and um, got some, some direction around this and still kept, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I, I wasn't ready yet to conclusively, but now I have, you know, some more substantial information, but now it's 2000. And, um, I now weigh about 155 pounds. It's always wild. The kind of, you know, more of the pathology. I'm just very conscious of the time here. And I want to make sure I get through this. 
Um, but I, I, one of the ways that my eating disorder, the, the, the pathology shows up for me is kind of this obsession with weight and, and, uh, you can give me a month and a year and I can, I can tell you within five years, five pounds, what I weighed. You can give me, you can give me any month, any year. And I can tell you, right. It's like, remember $6 million man that like, I can just, I will just focus in and I will just tell you that's the, that's how it shows up for me. And, um, and so I weighed about 155 and I was seeing the registered dietitian. I'd been seeing her on a weekly basis. I always had a sponsor and I had a, a, you know, I've always had great people who sponsored me over the years. And both in the same week, those two women, it was May of 2000, independently of one another, they both said, okay, this is crazy because you're 45 pounds down from your top weight and, uh, and you're not abstinent. You don't have an abstinence date. We're gonna, you need to put your stake in the ground. Again, these two women just independently of each other. Remember, I don't argue with people here. I don't, I'm not going to argue with people here. I'm just not. First of all, you don't want to argue with anybody in 12-step program because we, we want to win. We want to win every argument we're in. And I'm just not, that's just not a hill I want to die on here. But I just took their direction and independently because the dietitian that I was seeing was also in Overeaters Anonymous. So I've got a sponsor over here and a dietitian independently of each other said, you got to put a stake in the ground and claim an abstinence state. So I grabbed my abstinence state and it's May 30th, 2000. And, um, and, and my abstinence was clarified to me. It was just being honest with my food and what I was eating because I still wasn't, it was another, it was another three and a half years before I was ready to put down the sugar, but I was being abs. I was being honest with my food I was following sponsor direction and I was directed to claim an abstinence state. So I did it, right? Because again, I don't argue with you people. And what happened in terms of getting clear about how sugar was a problem for me, and this story will, will take us right to, the, uh, right to the end here, is my husband, he, he's now my husband, but he'd been in my life. He was a, you know, we were friends and then he was a boyfriend and then he was a fiance and we had a long engagement, right? Had a 10 year, 10 year engagement. People would say, why the long engagement? I'd say, I'm afraid. And they'd say, what are you afraid of? I'd say, <laughs> what do you got? Right? So we were in the midst of, we were engaged at this point. And um, we, we, and he, he'd been on these ride, this ride with me because my, my pattern was to lose weight and gain weight, lose weight and gain weight, lose weight and gain weight. Even though I've never been back up to my top weight, I would lose and gain, lose and gain, lose and gain. I'd lose and gain 15 pounds three, four times a year, right? Well, that's 90 to 120 pounds a year. And I did that routinely here, right? And it's just the number. It just kept, you know, it just kept getting lower and lower. It's like, so, you know, maybe I was bouncing between 180 and 165 for a while, then it was 165 and 155. And I just kept doing that. That was always my pattern. And my, you know, again, my now husband, Neil, was just on this ride with me, right? The up, the down, the up, the down, the up, the down. And it was, uh, it was November of um, 2003. And I'd been absent in OA, right? Because I'm just following sponsor direction, but I'm still occasionally eating sugar. And I got off sugar right in November because nobody gets off sugar before Halloween. 
And so I make it through Thanksgiving, make it through Christmas, make it through, you know, January 1st. And it's January. Let me make sure I've got these dates right. Yes, it was January the 13th. And I have a stellar conversation that I have with my mother that we'll probably get to later in the, the workshop. But I have a, a life-changing conversation. So now it's January 13th. I've been off sugar because I'm on that on sugar, off sugar run. And I've been off for a couple of months and all those feelings, all that stuff. And my husband and I go out to dinner and we're at this really nice restaurant. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if my husband said something, if the waiter looked at me cross-eyed, I don't know. But all of a sudden during the course of the meal, I just decide I'm going to have sugar. So I said to my husband, let's have dessert. And my husband like grips the side of the table, like, uh, okay, because he knows the run we're about to go on, right? And the waiter brings the dessert and he puts it down in be between us and we're sharing the dessert. And now there's a problem though, because I've activated that allergy of the body and that obsession of the mind. The obsession of the mind never goes away, but I've now activated the allergy of the body that Silkworth talks about that we're going to talk about in a minute here as we jump into step one. Um, and we got a problem because we're sharing a dessert and my husband's eating more than me. And I know because I'm counting bites. I'm counting the bites I'm eating and I'm counting the bites he's eating and he's eating more than me. And this is a problem. And uh, so now it's like, we got to get out of it because it's 11 o'clock at night. We're doing a late dinner and we got to get out of this restaurant. We got to get out of here, right? Because I, I need more sugar. This is not, we have now activated the giant. There was a bear that was hibernating in the cave and I've gone in and I've just whacked that bear. I whacked that bear and that bear is looking up at me and it's like, yeah. And I got to get, I'm, we got to get out of this restaurant. Waiter, check, check, right. We got to get out of here now because I got to get some real deal sugar. And we are hustling to the car because my husband never wants to valet park. And I'm like, come on, baby, let's go, let's go. And I'm already planning the lie that I'm going to tell. And I've got a doozy of a lie plan because I need to get more sugar. I'm going to get him dropped off at home. I'm going to have to explain to him why he's getting dropped off at home. And I'm going to the store because I need to get tampons because, and he's going to think, well, wait a minute, didn't she just finish a period about a week ago? I'm like, no, I got another lie plan there. I got ovarian cysts. You know, oh, I went to the doctor. It could be cancer. Like I've already got the lie planned. I got it all going on. Nine fifty-eight. Because I need more sugar. And my hand touches the handle of the car. And all of a sudden I think, because I've been doing, remember, I've been doing this run for years. I've been doing this for years in a way. And all of a sudden I think, wow, I'm glad I don't live in a high rise. I thought, where did, where did that come from? And in that moment, I got it. I got powerlessness and I could no longer guarantee. I knew it. I could no longer guarantee if I kept eating sugar, I couldn't guarantee I wasn't going to one day take myself out maybe sooner rather than later. And uh, I had that profound awareness and I woke up the next day, right? Having had that awareness and what did I do? I had sugar again. That's the pathology. But the next day, the 15th, January 15th, I put sugar down and, um, and my journey continued, right? In terms of my abstinence. And we'll talk more about that, how that's kind of been an organic fluid thing. But uh, that's certainly my, my story. So now let's, uh, let's start talking about, about how, how all this, this opens up, right? Let's uh, Sheila, I want to interrupt you for a moment. Uh, people are sending questions to me privately. Um, if you have questions, you can go ahead and 
different questions to everyone and the different co-hosts who are supposed to address different questions will respond to you. So if you hit everyone, uh, some you have two different co-hosts looking for different kinds of questions, they'll respond to you directly. But if you send it to me privately, the other co-host can't respond. So I hope that makes sense. So if you're sending chats, chat to everyone and the, all the co-hosts will see it. Thank you. Excellent point, great, great point, Willie. Um, yeah, so the whole, the whole thing cracked open because I was willing to follow direction and start working the steps. And, um, and before we jump into the steps in the big book, I just wanna, I wanna throw this out because I've talked about something that in some people's mind has some, some controversy in Overeaters Anonymous. It has no controversy in my mind because I was following sponsor direction. And now at this point in terms of my experience, I've just done the same thing with people that I've sponsored. But this whole idea of whether or not somebody can work the steps if they're not abstinent. And again, remember, I don't, I don't have arguments with people in program. There are no authorities in 12-step programs. If you call Alcoholics Anonymous World Service and you've got a question, right? There's something that's going on in your meeting and you wanna get a ruling, what they'll do is they'll kind of gently explore it a little bit and then they'll say, what we find tends to work the best is if you, you might look at it and perhaps do it this way. But at the end of the day, whatever you and your group decide or whatever makes the most sense to you, that's probably the path you want to take. So there are no authorities in program. And the direction I got from my sponsor in 1988 to work the steps, despite the fact I was still in the food, that came three years before that OA 12 and 12 came out. And on that, in that first edition, because there's now a second edition, but in the first edition, it talks about it's in step four and it's saying, look, and it's, I think it's on page, it's either page 30, 31 or 32. It wraps around, I know, to the next page and it says, look, we think it would be a good idea that you would be abstinent before you do a four step. We absolutely think that. But maybe working a four-step while you're still in the food is going to be the very thing that is going to propel you into conclusively taking a third step. So jump in. So that was, I got direction from my sponsor three years before conference-approved literature from Overeaters Anonymous said that, right? So I'm so grateful to that sponsor and that I was willing to follow that direction because had I not followed that direction in 1988, in 1990, when my dad said that one more nasty comment publicly to me about my weight, I never would have had the ability to turn around and say, knock it off, no more. That was a direct result of working the steps in Overeaters Anonymous for two years, despite the fact I wasn't abstinent. That's recovery. So again, I don't get into the debate. I 
you you can't you can't argue with somebody's ash. You can't argue with somebody's experience, strength, and hope. There's no arguing, and there's nothing to argue about. And if I've I've got it backed up in conference-approved literature, and an eating disorder is a process addiction, in contrast to alcoholism. And again, we don't want to get into that. That's a better discussion for people who know a lot more about this. People in the medical establishment, but there is a difference between a process addiction and a conventional addiction. And um, I was just following direction. So I do the same thing with people that I sponsor, is I say, your food and when it's going to come together for you is a God job. What we're going to do is I'm going to take you through the steps of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I love all the conference-approved literature. Obviously, I haven't read it all, obviously. But um, the reason that I spend my time working with chronic slippers, because those are the people I work with exclusively in this program and in the mother program, not for any other reason, but that I've got my ash there. And that's, I hope you can't hear that barking dog. Hush! Um, um, I, the reason I do it in the big book is because there is all kinds of direction in that big book. There's all kinds of direction there. And people who are, have been slipping have some, and I know this from my experience, right? We have really deep grooves, those painful, painful grooves. If you think about driving down a country road and you know, there's, there's the, 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 the side of the road, right? There's the ditch before you kind of jump up and you get on the easement up onto the lawn of the, you know, there's that ditch. Well, I, I would so often end up in that ditch in those grooves, right? Those, and those grooves run really deep. You get so much direction in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just a really, it's a really powerful, wonderful place. And I don't want to miss out on it. So I take people through the steps as they're outlined. And the first thing I have somebody do is I say, read chapter seven, working with others. And this all automatically catches somebody off guard. Because if I'm working with somebody who's only been banging their head against the wall for five years, that's a short amount of time. Usually the people who I end up working with are people who've been here for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And like I said, there's a, you know, I told you about that, that there's somebody in program who's got, she's been trying to pull together an abstinence because she's still wrestling with the perfectionist thing. She's been trying to pull together abstinence for 40 years. She'll, co she'll come and ask me to sponsor about every 16, 18 months and we get going and she'll cut and run at this point or cut and run here or I invite her to keep counting her days despite the fact she hasn't done it perfectly. She's been honest with her food, but because she hasn't been perfect, she feels this need to, to, to start over. And I don't, if I'm your sponsor, you're no longer in charge of your food. You're making a mess of things. So, and it's not my job and I can't get you abstinent, but I can certainly be a good channel for God. I do that. I'm pretty good at that. I like, I like doing that. And I'm going to use the book as a template and my sponsor has a sponsor who has a sponsor. So you're going to be part of a, a very strong lineage here. And you don't, you don't need to run the show anymore. You don't need to be in charge. So, um, so move on out of the way, right? And none of my sponsees are ever in a situation where they are calling me and saying something like, I lost my abstinence last night. I always tell them, you're, you're no longer in charge of your abstinence. Your abstinence is always between you, your sponsor, and God, right? That was a great direction I got from somebody. My absence is between me, my sponsor, and God. 
But what I say to my sponsees is, I say, well, we're just going to move you out of the picture for now, though. We're just going to have your absence be between me and my loving God. And what my loving God says is, we're just going to keep counting the days. I want you to be honest with your food, but this will come together. And as we just keep counting the days, and I'll talk more about my sponsor, because this is what my sponsor does, my wonderful sponsor, this woman named Nanette. She's got 38 years. She's amazing. And um, uh, she doesn't believe in perfectionism. She says that this, she says that Overeaters Anonymous, what we do here, it has nothing to do with, uh, with food and has everything to do with wrestling with perfectionism. And I just love that, right? And um, at any rate, so the first thing that I ask somebody to do <clears throat> is read chapter seven. And this kind of catches them off guard because again, they remember they've been here for years and this is, this is a step that's way back in, 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 in the in the chapter it just catches them it's a, it's the step 12 chapter of the book but usually by the time somebody gets to me they're out of good ideas and so they just you know and that's that's what you want you want a sponsee who's out of good ideas there was a guy in program and he said one time he said uh he he came in in the rooms and he asked the the toughest guy in the room to be his sponsor and he said and I was just done. And I knew I wanted, I knew this guy was going to give me the business. And he said, and if he had said to me, be at my house tomorrow morning, right? We're going to bring your big book and bring a notebook and bring a pen. And oh, by the way, bring a bottle of pine stall and a toilet brush because you're going to clean the five toilets in my house before we get working. He said, and he, if he had said to me, be there at 6 a.m., he said, I would have been there at 545, ready to go. That's the kind of sponsor you want. You can't make somebody get to that place. That is the gift of desperation that is usually the result of being beaten down time and time and time again. If somebody's lucky, it doesn't happen often, but some, some people come in and they're just willing. They just say, well, I don't have to have all these horrible things. And the book talks about that, right? That they just say, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it to, I surrender. I'm waving the white flag. Most of us are not like that. I certainly wasn't like that. So at any rate, I get people going on the uh, on the that chapter, and I tell them that that we've already had the conversation. I say you're going to be reading and writing on a daily basis if you're working with me. You're going to be sending me an email at night, and you're going to be telling me what you ate, which means you're going to have to weigh them. You're going to have to weigh and measure, because if you are here. And you want to be here in terms of your weight. We've we've got to have we've got to have some way that we're measuring that. We got to have some way that we're paying attention to that. And I can't have you telling me that you had a cheeseburger and a bag of Doritos for lunch because I don't know. Did you get those Doritos at Seven Eleven or Costco? Like we've got to. There has to be some whamming. So you got to. You're going to have to make friends with that. You're going to have to get yourself a scale. And you don't have to be afraid of the scale. Like people get afraid of scale. You don't have to be afraid of that. See, I grew up in a family full of diabetics. We had scales all over my house. I've never had the issue with scales. And I am a whammer. I weigh and measure about 80% of the time in my home. I don't weigh out when I go into restaurants. I don't weigh if I go into somebody's home. But um, but I, I it works for me. Again, given the health issues that I, I, I deal with, it makes it easier for me and for my healthcare professionals to not have that X factor of dealing with weight issues. 
and I'm I'm 57. I just turned 57 a few days ago, October 28th, Scorpio baby. Um, I uh, it it's it's good that I've I'm and I'm in menopause, right? It's official. Um, I had the blood test. Uh, it's I, I didn't want to 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 gain weight through menopause because I didn't want that to create additional problems. I deal with some mild. Uh, uh, and then, you know, had the issues with the back, but I deal with some mild uh, mobility issues sometimes and some balance issues and stuff. If you're praying people, right? And I imagine you are, keep me in your prayers, right? Um, but I, I didn't want to have that. So it wasn't like, oh, I, you know, thou shalt not gain weight going through menopause. And I, cause I, I don't have an attachment necessarily to a number. I don't, I definitely don't have an attachment to a number. I definitely don't have an attachment to a clothing size, but I do have an attachment certainly to the clothing in my closet. And I'm not somebody who loves to shop. I less is more. I, I, you know, I have dresses and pants and stuff that I've been wearing, you know, for 10, 15 years. And um, I like it like that. Right. So I, I knew that I was going to have to eat less as you go through menopause, your metabolism slows. So because I still see a registered dietitian, I don't all the time, but I'm, I'm back in with that. Cause I, you know, had something that was giving me some concern and I had some, you know, I knew I needed to get some professional support with this. Um, I, uh, I knew that I needed to eat less. And in this chapter, right. What I tell people, right. When you're reading chapter seven, cause you're going to be doing all these things because it is all these tasks that I'm asking people to do that I do many of those things, same things, so that I can stay regulated. And one of the ways I stay regulated is because I report my food as you, my sponsee, new sponsee of mine, you're going to be reporting your food and you're going to be whamming your food because we have to be able to keep track of things. It's only because I could keep track of things that when I got to uh, menopause, I knew that something needed to change if I wanted to stay at that weight not because I have an attachment. I mean, I'm an old broad. I mean, come on. But it's, it's, I, I wanted to stay healthy. I wanted to stay healthy in terms of health issues and doctors and things like that. And I could only do that because I have been whamming and paying attention to my food and numbers from a science perspective, not an emotional perspective. I sit down with registered dietitians where it's about numbers. It's science. And um, so, because that's, this, these, this, and I, we've had, by the time somebody, we get going on the stuff, we've already had all this conversation. They know they're going to be reading and writing on a daily basis. They're going to be sending me an email telling me what they ate. And I, you know, because, and I, the, the thing I want people to do is I, I, I want to make it a safe place for them, right? I don't, you know, if, if you're going to lie about something, don't lie about your food. Lie about something more interesting than your food, right? Tell me you used to date Brad Pitt. Tell me you're Julia Roberts' cousin. Tell me you went to Harvard Medical School, but you prefer to work at the, you know, at, at, at the Gap. Like lie about something more. You don't need to lie about your food. I want to make this a safe place for people so that they can just absolutely lay it all out. But you've got, we got to wham because we got to know what we're dealing with. And I want you to have a loving witness. And many of us never had a safe place to be honest about our food. I mean, a lot of us will tell, well, I don't know about men, but I know women, right? Like I'll go and get my hair done 
first time, right, seeing this person at this new place, and I'll tell her stuff that was on my doorstep, but I didn't want to tell people what I ate for dinner. I didn't want to tell a sponsor what I ate for dinner or what I was, you know, I, I didn't want to do that kind of stuff. That's the pathology. That's the stuff we have to get through. That's the problem. So I make, I make sure people get it, that this is a safe place for you to be honest with you about your food. And you're going to be working the steps. We're going to just get that going. Remember, this is my story. This is my ash. We're going to get going with the step work. You're going to be honest about your food. You're going to have a loving witness. And we're going to get it down on paper or on computer, right? Because I don't want people writing stuff in notebooks. Somebody said, oh, can I write it in a notebook and take a picture and text it to you? <laughs> no, right? I, no, <laughs> not for me. Not for me. So, you know, the, the, the keyboard is your friend, right? Notebooks are great for you to write stuff. And there is something different that shows up if you're writing on a computer versus when you're writing, you know, with a pen and paper. And that's great. But on this kind of stuff, you're going to send me an email at night. You're going to tell me what you're having in your food. You're, we're going to get you making outreach calls. You got to build a community here. You got to build a community. And that was the last tool that really, it took a long time for that one to land for me. To, to make those outreach calls. So I say to people, don't do what I did, stand on my shoulders. That's the value of having sponsors with experience. So I slipped for a dozen years. If you've been doing it for five, let's nip that in the bud, stand on my shoulders. But you are going to make outreach calls and you're gonna make, I'm just telling you now, I'm just telling you now, you're gonna make three outreach calls a day. And, um, and, and <laughs> well, we, I don't wanna scare anybody. We're eventually going to get to the point that has to be either three live calls or six message calls. Because again, I want people to build a community. Look, okay, I want to keep going with this, but somebody remind me, somebody, you know what we should have? Maybe Morley, because I know Morley's going to be on here all day. I'm, I'm reticent to give Morley another tax task, but Morley, write down Sheila's pie story, pie love story. I want to make sure I get to that one. I don't want to get distracted. It was pie story. Oh, okay, got it. Got it. Got it. So um, it's not the it's not the uh, it's not the food you want. You might not know that yet. It's the love, uh, but you're just settling for the food. Okay, so um, so. What you really want is the love. So I'm going to, because of the people I work with, and we've got those really deep grooves, and I know those deep grooves, and I'm going to use the big book is my, you know, good cop, bad cop, good cop, bad cop, right? The book has all kinds of direction. And my sponsor always says to me, she says, look, I'll always be your bad cop. You can always say to your sponsees, like, I know, I don't want to make outreach calls either, but my sponsor says we have to. She says, I'll always be your bad cop. So I'm going to give people, right, there's going to, you're going to be reading and writing on a daily basis. You're going to be making an outreach calls because you want to build that community of love. It's not enough to go to meetings. It's not. You got to have contact outside the meetings. You do. So that when you show up at the meeting, you can remember, oh, I talked with Jane. I want to check in with her because she was, you know, she was going to be hearing for, about the grad school if she got in and, oh, uh, uh, Susie over there. Susie is, um, she's, uh, she just got a new puppy. I want to hear about that. And oh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Peter, he's, you know, he's, he's, a he's got a song he was working on a new song for, you know, for his, for his work. 
want to hear about that. I, you know, he was excited about that. Like, and I only know that because I made the outreach calls. So you're going to start building a community. So I, I tell, and I, I tell people this in our first conversation and, and if you're drowning a blue boat, a red boat, a purple boat, a brown boat, a green boat could save your life, but you got to get out of the water and you got to get in a boat. You got to get in a boat and you might as well get in a boat because if you're in the water and you've been treading the water for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, two things, you're tired and the sharks know it. And there are sharks in the water and they're circling. So get in the boat, get in the boat, get in the boat. You got in my boat, you got in a red row boat. And presumably you got in my boat because you want what I have. And if you want what I have, you probably want to do what I'm doing. And if you decide that you don't want to do what I'm asking you to do, well, you don't need to jump back in the water. I'm going to row you up alongside somebody else's boat. I'm going to row you up alongside Steve's boat. I'm going to hold your hand while you're getting out of my rowboat and getting onto Steve's catamaran. And then he's going to catamaran you away or whatever they do. I don't know. I'm not a boat person, right? But, um, and I'm going to be blowing kisses as you go, hoping that you remember what I talked to you about with outreach calls. And maybe you're going to give me one of those once in a while, right? But if you don't want to do the things that I'm asking you to do, doesn't mean you can't get recovery. There's many boats in the harbor. Get out of the water and get on a boat and just do what somebody's asking you to do. And most people aren't gonna aren't gonna have you do all the things that I ask people to do. They're not, they're not gonna do that. I'm just doing it because I know how dire the 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 stakes are here. I know, I know what we're dealing with here, and I know that from my own experience. I paid a very high price and maybe we'll have time to talk about some of that later, right? I don't want people to pay those high prices. So we're gonna catch up, we're gonna catch all this stuff as we go. We're gonna be reading and writing on a daily basis. We're gonna be making outreach calls on a daily basis. Oh, we're gonna start meditation right from the get-go. You don't need to wait till you get to step 11. My people start meditating five minutes a day, right from the beginning. And we're eventually, I'm eventually gonna get them up to 15 minutes a day. And I don't ever push anybody beyond 15 minutes. But if you don't have 15 minutes a day to sit quietly, you haven't gotten what you came for yet. Certainly if you don't have five minutes. I do remember somebody saying, I don't have five minutes. And I thought, how do you get out the door in the morning? How do you get your shoes tied? Are you sure you got your underwear on? You know, the front's in the front and the back's in the back. If you don't have five minutes to sit quietly? Really? Really? So, um, and again, not my business. Bless you, change me. But if we're working together, we're going to get these, these things are going to be in place and you're all, you're going to be sending those to me in an email. Oh, and, and there's a 10 item gratitude list. That didn't come from me. That came from my sponsor. And I can remember when my sponsor said, when she added that to the list, like doing 10 things for gratitude. I remember thinking, oh, right. But the only correct answer to a sponsor is yes. So I just said, yes. So that's the other thing that I've added. So, and these are all things that are going to be coming to me. At, at night and people already know this so they're already in so now they've read chapter seven and you're going to read for the most part you're going to be reading a chapter a day and once at different points in the book it, it, it pairs back in terms of of the page count but you'll always be reading at least two pages a day in the big book and um and in the beginning you're going to be reading whole chapters because we're going to start working together and within definitely within two weeks, but, but usually it's within 10 days. 
sometimes I slow it down on step two a little bit and spend a couple of days on, on step three, but you're going to be on a four step within 10 days, definitely no longer than two weeks. You're going to be going, doing a four step and you're, and you're going to have two weeks to do the four step. It doesn't take a long time. And we'll see that when we get to the assignment and, um, oh, this would actually be a good thing. This will be a good place. Let's do this here because I wanted to include this with my story. Let's do our first exercise, okay? So we'll put a pin in it right now. We know we're on step seven, but I want to put a pin in it because I want to give you a little exercise here. And then we're just going to take, it's going to take three minutes. We're going to take three minutes with this, okay? So you got your piece of paper. I want you to write down a secret. Write down a secret you've got in your life. And I know the one, I'm not writing it down here, but I, I, I know the one, and this is always the one that I use. So write that secret down and just in a few words, you know, few words. You don't have to write a whole sentence, but just write a secret. And maybe nobody knows this. Maybe a few people know it. Maybe your spouse knows it. Maybe your sponsor knows it. Maybe your therapist knows it. Maybe a doctor knows it, but write down a secret. Okay. So just take 30 seconds and give everybody 30 seconds, write down your little secret. I've started humming. I love humming. I didn't have a mother who was a hummer. Once in a while in public restrooms, I'll hear somebody humming. I love humming. We're going to take 10 more seconds. Get your secret written down. And draw a line underneath the secret now. Just draw a line underneath it, right? And just yes or no. Would you pitch that secret in a meeting? Yes or no? Okay. And draw a line underneath that answer, that yes or no. And now just write in a few words, why? Why wouldn't you do it? What is, what, is, what is your concern that people would think what? That's the question. That people would think what of you if you pitched this secret in a meeting, if you told them this secret? People would think what of you? Take another 30 seconds. about another 10 seconds here. People would think what if you pitched that secret? And maybe some of you said, yes, I would pitch it. Usually it doesn't go that way. I'm going on the assumption that I feel quite sure most of you said no. I know I said no. Okay, so you've got now the, the reason you wouldn't pitch it because people would think what, right? So draw a line underneath it. 
Now, if you were in a meeting and somebody pitched that secret, and maybe they got emotional, because usually when we keep secrets, there's a lot of pain that comes with it, sadness, trauma. If somebody pitched that secret, what would you feel toward that person? Maybe a word or two. What would you feel? Take another 10 seconds. What would you feel if you heard someone share that very thing? Now, if some of you want to just throw it out in the chat, right? We can maybe look at some of those things later. Some of our techs can pull those up. I, I'm, I'm not quite skilled enough to kind of maneuver a chat and go on back and forth between this, but, but that difference between what you wrote there, how you'd respond to somebody and what your concern is and your fear, how people would respond to you, that chasm, that's the disease. That's the pathology. And the same secret, the same concern that I had the first time I did this exercise in 2017 in Detroit, Michigan, when I was at leading a retreat, it's yeah. the I have a response. Should I read that to you? Hang on just a second. But okay. the same secret that I had and the feeling that I had is I would feel shame. I couldn't share it because I would feel shame. I would feel that I would be ostracized. And the feeling that I had, if I heard it from someone else, was love and compassion. So I, I'm afraid I'd get this if I shared it. But if you shared it, I could be completely loving and compassionate with you. That's the disease. What's one of the responses you got, Morley? You're muted. Yeah, no. Okay. Um, so should I give the name of the person responding? No. Okay. Gratefulness for honesty and vulnerability, love and resonance. Right. Right. Another says... Gratitude for, see, uh, gratitude for seeing their honesty, regret that they are feeling and carrying that secret and wish them to be unburdened. Great, and we'll, we'll just go ahead and stop there because I have a feeling that we could have every, we got, you know, 250 plus people. I have a feeling most of the responses would be like that. Gratitude that somebody felt comfortable and, and trusted people enough to share it, love, compassion. I remember going around the room and asking everybody again at this Detroit thing, like, what would you feel? And across the board, it was love, compassion, warmth. I'd want to hug them. All those things, 
all those things that we can so naturally give to other people, but we, we are afraid it's not coming, it wouldn't be coming to us, that's the pathology. That's what we're dealing with here. And you can't bully somebody in to feeling that they are loved here and that they're safe here. You can't shame somebody into it. If being mean to somebody was going to solve an eating disorder, my father would have solved my eating disorder problem in childhood. You can't do that. So this very loving approach that I fell into here in terms of working the steps, letting the food be God's business, and dive deep into the literature and the task at hand with a loving sponsor, along with being honest and transparent with my food, changed everything for me. So I tell people, read chapter seven and uh, write for 15 minutes, go to the paragraph at the top of, of page uh, 93. Uh, nine, that's not 93. It's 90. Let's look here. 96. It's 96, I think. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to read this to you. Go ahead and turn to the page in your book. So on page 96. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. He often says that if he'd continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. And I'll say right for 15 minutes on that. And then call me tomorrow. And usually the writing that somebody does is some indication that, oh yeah, if I don't do what you asked me to do, you're gonna fire me, you're gonna fire me. That's usually the language. Well, first of all, no, I'm, I'm not gonna fire you. I can't fire you. I didn't hire you. You were never hired, you can't be fired. And I would never use that kind of inflammatory language because we're, we're tender people here. We're tender, sensitive people. The book says we're oversensitive. I know I'm oversensitive, but we are tender. There's, there's, we just saw that in this exercise, right? We can extend love to other people that we're not sure is going to be coming our way. So that requires tenderness. We're tender. We need tender, loving care. So I say to them, oh, no, 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 that wasn't what I was wanting you. I mean, I hear you that that's what you got, but that wasn't. No, I just wanted you to understand that what the book seems to be directing me to do, it tells me that I need to work with people who are willing to work with me. It doesn't say we find it a waste of time to try and help a man who cannot or will not get sober. And it doesn't say who cannot or will not get abstinent or will not stop eating flour or sugar. It doesn't say that. It says we find it a waste of time to try and help a man who cannot or will not work with you. That's what I want to bring home to you. So again, good cop, bad cop. But what the book tells me it tells me that my job is to make myself available to people who will work with me. 
So then it gets established right on, on, on our first reading and writing assignment in what I consider a step one chapter moment. It, it establishes in terms of this relationship, you got to work with me. For us to work together, you got to work with me, right? And if you're in my boat and you decide you don't, you don't want to be in my boat, you don't want what I have, no problem. Trust me, on my bad days, I don't want what I have. So don't jump back in the water. But if we're working together, we're working together. And here's, where, here's what we're, we're going to do, okay? So um, now we're going we're gonna to do the, the step one chapters of the book. And I used to always say there were four step one chapters. Doctor's opinion, Bill's story. Uh, there is a solution, more about alcoholism. But now I've actually added, uh, I've actually added um, Dr. Bob's story, right? And it, it makes so much sense. It's really interesting. Here's what I, here's what I realized. This is why I love, you know, the big book is not a book to be read. It's a textbook to be studied. I, I, I've added Dr. Bob's nightmare. So I now consider that there are five step one chapters. So I'll have people again. So on the next day, they're going to read Dr.'s opinion. Next day, they're going to read Bill's story, write for 15 minutes. They're going to read uh, There's a Solution, write for 15 minutes. More about alcoholism, write for 15 minutes. And they're going to read Dr. Bob's Nightmare and write for 15 minutes. And it's interesting because if you go to the front of the book and you look at the, um, uh, you look at the table of contents, when, before you get out of the, when you get into the personal stories and it lists Dr. Bob's Nightmare, that story actually doesn't have a number. The first story that has a number is Alcoholics Anonymous number three. So I always think that that it's, I don't know why Dr. Bob's story wasn't included in what we always talk about the first 164. I don't say the first 164. I always say the first 181 because I consider Dr. Bob's story to be part and parcel with that because Bill was sober for six months and didn't even count his sobriety date until he got, you know, uh, connected up with Dr. Bob. So he counts his sobriety date as uh the same date as Bob's, June 10th, uh, 35. Anyway, so, um, okay, so they're, they've read all those chapters, right? And they're reading and writing. And so we've already got this established. So we're a week in and they're, you know, they're reading and writing, sending those emails at night. All those kind of things are already happening. And, and that's good. It's good because we've got to build new patterns to get away from those old patterns. And then we get to, and we're, we're going to come back, and I just want to make sure we get through the concrete step stuff, and then we'll come back and we'll look at some of the things, and I also have a couple of exercises I want, you know, we're, we're going to do here, but um, so we'll, we'll come back, but just so you know, that's what happens, and then we'll look at a few interesting things amongst, in, in, in those chapters, but then we get to, to step two, right, and that's the we agnostics chapter, so, um, and, and I spend two days on this chapter, and the first chapter, the first day, they read the chapter, and you're always going to, anytime you're reading for me, anytime you're reading in the book, because it's a textbook to be studied, not a book to be read, I want you to highlight and annotate at least one thing on every single page, right? Highlight and annotate at least one thing on every single page. So underlining, you've got, remember, that's why you got your highlighter and you've got your pen. So if you want to write little notes in the margin or you want to highlight and stuff, but find at least one thing on every single page because they've done studies in terms of um, academia and you take in more material if you're highlighting and annotating in a book. 
So um, I, I want all my, my sponsees to, to, to do that so that you really pull in the rich the richness of the text. So on the first day, you're reading the We Agnostics chapter, highlighting and annotating, and write for 15 minutes on the God that you have in place right now. Again, keeping in mind that I work with chronic slippers. So I work with people who, for whatever reason, they have not felt safe enough to let go of the food and claim and, and stand in their abstinence and abide in it. I love that. I love that. Morley and I were talking this week in terms, I don't want to talk about his work and stuff, but he just, he introduced, he was talking to me about that beautiful word abide, right? So um, uh, what is that higher power that you have in place right now? What are the ideas? And you can do this, write it, do it for 15 minutes. 15 minutes is not five, it's not seven. So I say set a timer, right? So that you, you literally are giving yourself that time. It doesn't mean you need to be writing ferociously. You can, I call that snow plowing. You, you, can, you can do that, right? Where you're just writing nonstop, pen, pen never stops moving on the paper. Or if you're typing, right? right? But, um, but I want you to write about the God you have right now. And the second day, I have them do the same thing. Read that chapter, highlight and annotate at least one thing on every single page and write the God, the, the, the idea of God you would have to have in place to feel safe enough to just consider putting down the food knowing that it's not the food you want it's the love you want to be in the place where just like on our first exercise you know you'd be receiving the same thing that you could so easily extend so what is that god you would need to have in place so let's just do that as a mini exercise now let's take three minutes i'm going to cut my video uh, and do a little stretch. And you're going to do that assignment, right? We're going to take three minutes. And uh, I know we have a timer, so I'll let one of our tech people let us know. They'll, they'll, they can maybe give us a one minute warning on the timing, and then we'll, we'll know when we wrap it up. And I've got for 15 minutes. Uh, no, no, we're, we're writing for three minutes. Three minutes. Okay. This is a three minute exercise. And it is 1040, by the way. Yep. Yep. Very good. So, um, so yeah, write the idea of God you have now. And what is the idea of God you would have to have? And if you're already abstinent, what, how did that, if you remember, like what, what did it used to be and what is it now? And if you are somebody who is struggling or you could be abstinent, but you know, Hey, I'm struggling to do, you know, deal with this or step into the career or, you know, pursue the graduate school or do whatever it is. Right. Um, have the baby, whatever. What is the God you have now? And what is the one you would have to have in place? Okay, so let's take three minutes. Be right back. Let's see, and we're probably getting close to our time here. Right. 30 seconds left. Okay, guys. Yeah. And again, we'll just in the interest of, of time, um, I would invite you because as a, we're doing these exercises, and I wish we did, I wish we had more time, we certainly can do this when I'm 
doing it and I have a weekend, right? And we can hear some of the answers. We, we're not always going to be able to do that now, but I would really invite you to take these things and bring these either into your relationship with your sponsor in conversation or with sponsees or on outreach calls or, you know, pitching in meetings, because these are the, the really interesting things that we can talk about. You know, it's, it's anything we ever share in a meeting is a, appropriate to share. If we bring problems, you know, it's generally suggested that, you know, we'd hope we would either ask for help or, you know, kind of have gotten clear what the solution is, right? Either through the sharing or through the, the work or whatever. But, um, but it's really interesting to bring material from the book and share it in a meeting. It, it really kind of gets people excited. You know, if you're in literature studies, you know what I'm talking about. So at any rate, that's, that's what we, I handle in terms of step two. And then step three is um, from page 58 to the bottom of 63. And so I have people read those pages and of course, 58 through 60, we know what that is. That's how it works. We read in our meetings. And, um, and then continuing on to the bottom of 63. And I'm going to have them read that. Usually I'll have people read that twice, those pages twice. And sometimes I'll split it up and I'll have them read from 58 to 60, just because it's different when you're reading it, and you're not hearing it in the meeting and you're not kind of doing it. You're looking at it differently and you're seeing what the, the power of those words. And um, I think we've got it uh, attached now. We've got, um, there's the original how it works. And that has, um, that's showed up in the chat. I think that's probably been attached and we can, we can take a little peek at that. And um, here it is, very good, thanks. Morley's got it up there for us. And we're just gonna glance at this for a moment. And at this point, I'll usually bring this up to people because um, the first 164 pages of the book, right? Which obviously does not include the doctor's opinion that was written by Silkworth. But it was written by well, Bill Wilson, as was the AA 12 and 12. It was all written by Bill. Now, this first, the original How It Works, though, the 99 men and the one woman, they, they had some real concern with how Bill originally had this. And we're not going to look at all of this, but let's go, let's um, take it down a little bit, yep, a little bit further here. Okay, let's just keep going. Okay, so and stop right there for a second. Um, I want you to see how it it they took it away from the Bill had the way he originally had this. It was very adamant, right? Half measures will avail you nothing. It wasn't us, right? There wasn't kind of the the collective we like we could kind of whew, right we could kind of retreat into that. He was says. Um, Half measures will avail you nothing. You stand at the turning point. Throw yourself under his protection and care with complete abandon. Now we think you can take it. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as your program of recovery. Okay, and let's go down here and look at a minute. Um, let's keep going here. And because you have this attached in the chat and you can take a look at this and I would invite you to really do this and just keep going there. We're gonna keep going, going, going. We're going to go right to the end. So remember we have here at the end in what we, okay, and we can stop right there. And remember how we, we, we talked about this before, you know, the A, B, and C, right? 
A, that B, that we were alcoholic, B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, C, that God could and would if he were sought, and how it is in the other, in the book, in the one that we have now, being convinced we were at step three, which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that? And just what do we do? And then the first requirement, and it jumps into it. This is how Bill originally had it written, what you're seeing on screen now. A, that you are alcoholic and cannot manage your own life. B, that probably no human power can relieve your alcoholism. C, that God can and will. Then look at this next line. If you are not convinced on these vital issues, you ought to reread the book to this point or else throw it away. Like, that's pretty powerful. And again, you'll see other things and I'll let you kind of look at that in your leisure because the other thing we didn't talk about is we're always going to end these sessions. There'll be a Q&A. If you have questions, you can throw them up in the chat and I'm happy to give you my two cents and weigh in on things. And if we don't have questions or we don't have enough questions show up, then what we'll do is we'll, uh, you know, we'll get back and we can look at some things in the book. But I would really invite you to take this. So you've got this handout and look at it and compare it to the one because those people came to Bill and they said, Bill, 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 you can't, you can't talk to alcoholics like that. You, you can't do that. And they, they, they begged him and they, 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 they got, they prevailed upon him and got him to let them help him soften it and, and weigh in on the, how it works. So that's the, how it works that we have. Those are the pages. Those are the only pages that aren't written exclusively by Bill. And what you have is the original, how it worked. That's how Bill originally saw it. And it was, it was just coming in like this. And he was just saying, basically get it or die. Right. Which even if that's the message, we can't, we don't want to talk to people like that, right? We want to, kind of, because we're tender people, right? We got those tender hearts. So then, so then I'll have people the second day, I want them to finish up on step three and read. Yeah, Ron. And read, oh, Morley, you're- uh, Ron, yeah. I'm right here. What's up? Marley, sweetie, you're- Hold you're, a second, hold on. Oh. Yeah. So- uh, Ron. Right, Morley, you're still unmuted. All right. So then what I'll do, <laughs> the great lie workshop. So the second day I'll have them read from the bottom of 60 to um, the bottom of 63. And I say, pay special attention to the paragraph at the top of page 63. This is my very favorite paragraph in the book. So I'm gonna read this to you. So you can turn to the paragraph at 63. Top of 63. When we sincerely took such a position and the antecedent in the paragraph before is basically that God's in charge, you're not. God's the director. You're the one who's just getting moved around on the floor. Do exactly what God wants you to do. You do not have the power. So when we sincerely took such a position, God's in charge, I'm not. All sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. It is uh, 53, 1053. Thank you. That's, those are pretty powerful promises. 
don't let anybody, you know, convince you that they're, you know, talk about nine step promises as though those are the only promises in the book. This whole book is full of promises. I always say it's too bad in AA that we don't drink anymore because that would be a great drinking game. Like grab a big book, turn to whatever page and whoever finds the first premise, I guess because you're an alcoholic gets to drink twice, right? So, um, but the book is full of promises, but look at all the promises just in that paragraph. And so I invite people to read those, you know, on the second day of step three work, I read those pages from the bottom of 60 to the bottom of 63, pay special attention to that paragraph at the top of page 63 and write for 15 minutes. And look at how powerful that is. If I will just let God run the show, I'm going to feel new power flow in. There's a promise. I'm going to enjoy peace of mind. Another promise. I'm going to be able to face life successfully. Yet another promise. Become conscious of his presence. There's a promise. I'm going to lose the fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. It doesn't get much better than that, right? So this is the kind of stuff. This is why I spend the time in the book. And again, we'll see what shows up in questions. If we don't have as many questions, we can get back and we'll take a look. Otherwise, we'll, we might try, try and grab some things later. And a little tiny assignment I had. And if we don't have time to do it now, you can take this and do this. And what I would invite you to do is take that paragraph at the top of page 63 and, and find three places there. Find three of the things that it's promising and ask yourself what it would be like if, if you enjoy it. So for me, I would grab like the ones that are showing up now uh, as I could, if I could face life successfully, right? Because I'm building a, a new business. I'm, I'm starting a business. Well, I would write about that, how wonderful that could be, right? Uh, enjoying peace of mind. I have, have been having some struggles in my marriage. I think we're kind of coming out the other side of it. But, it, you know, what would peace of mind show up like? How would that feel? And if I lost my fear of tomorrow, which is fear of the future, right? And so look at those things there. And again, you can do that as a little assignment on your own um, and maybe do that, share that with a sponsor, share it with on an outreach call or something, but find in that paragraph, find three things there that if those were in place in your life, what would that mean to you? And how would that show up? Okay. All right. So that's our steps one, two, and three. And now we'll see if we have any, uh, we've got Q&A time for uh, 20 minutes. If we've got some questions, if not, we'll, uh, we'll jump back into the literature. Okay. There are some questions. Uh, one of the simple questions uh, was, let me go up here a little, was someone wanted to know exactly where you were reading uh, that uh, quote from Which quote? Bill when you, uh, let's see, where can I put it? Let's see. Yeah, there's a lot of questions here. Give me a moment. Yeah. Okay, let's see. Okay, so here's a question. Okay. Can you explain what you meant by process binge eater? Thank you. Oh, no, process addictions. And again, I don't want to get too much into that. And, and whomever this is, if you want to reach out to me, my contact information has you know, been provided. We can talk a little bit about it. And again, I'm not a healthcare professional, and I'm certainly not an addictions counselor. 
but um, I, you know, I, I played one on TV. No, I'm kidding. But I mean, I have some friends who are, and you know, one of my close friends is a physician. It, it, there's a difference between a process addiction, like eating disorders, gambling, sex addiction, versus an addiction like alcoholism. Um, and again, we can chat about it a little bit more and I can give you the limited experience I have, but there are some great things that you can access on the internet. And there's one great thing I'd come up with that I can, I can refer you to and we can talk more about it, but it just has to do with in terms of this obsession of the, the mind and how it shows up. And again, we'll, we'll, we can talk more about it, but it, I don't want to bore people with a, a medical thing. But, and again, if you put in process addiction in Google, it will bring up information for you. And feel free to be in touch with me and you and I can talk more about it. And I'd, I'd love to talk with you. About okay, it. another question. Can you tell me the part you just read and asked the sponsors to write on for 15 minutes? What was that? How to find that? No, I didn't ask anybody to write on anything for 15 minutes. We were writing on for the- three minutes, I think. I, we were looking, the thing that we just did is we did the, um, the step two part, right? So that's the, the we agnostics chapter. And I just said that what I do when, when I sponsor people, I'll do that over the course of two days. I'll have them read that chapter, chapter four, and um, highlight and annotate one thing at least on every page and write for 15 minutes. The first day is write the God that you have in place now, the idea of God that you have, whether it's an actual God or whether you use nature or whatever, because you don't need to believe in God to get abstinent, right? Or to get sober. Um, I have a, a buddy who said that for him, God is the electrical outlet in the wall, because if he takes his wife's hairdryer and dips the cord in water and sticks it in the wall, he will experience a power greater than himself, right? Other people use the group. Some other people use nature, right? I have a friend who uses the ocean. Um, I have another friend who says he uses um, rain, rainstorms. Because um, if he thinks he has, you know, gets caught up in this idea that he's got power, like he'll, he'll hear that there's a rainstorm coming tomorrow, like prevent it. And he knows he can't do that. Right. So there's all different ways that you can get in with this. I heard an atheist member of Overeaters Anonymous with longtime abstinence here. And he said that for him, God is G O D get outdoors. So, um, so yeah, so, so there's all kinds of things, but that was the assignment we were looking at. And it, yeah, it wasn't a 15 minute, it was just a three minute. I was just kind of having you do a baby version. Uh -huh. Right. So what's the idea of God that you have now? And what's the idea of God you would need to have in place if you, if you if this hasn't come together with you in terms of your abstinence or if you're trying to build a business or you want to go to grad school or you want to get married or you want to get divorced or whatever it is. What is that loving entity, that compassion you would need to have in place? Yeah. Next question. So the question is a statement. What if the reason I won't share it is not shame, but I don't like people coming up to me and giving advice, which happens all the time. And I'm sick of all the support. I also judge myself as stupid for having this secret. Oh, well, I, I just, I so understand. And like I said, my contact information is provided and you know, you and I can help each other. And, and I'm, I'm right there with you, sister or brother, whomever it is, I so get it. And, and again, I'm, we're in Overeaters Anonymous and we're talking away, but you know, I, my, my, my sponsor says, you, you know, you can always share about other programs in program, you're safe here. But one of the things that I really love about Al-Anon in particular is we just don't do that. We just don't do it. Right? <laughs> and I know what you mean. And I, I, I know that we're, we're all well-meaning and stuff. I'm pretty good. I kind of, you know, I'm pretty good that I know that that's not going to show up for me. I'm not going to show up and give anybody my two cents after they've shared. 
but um, but I understand, and um, and I, you know, and I know you probably know this. It's people, you know, it's they're well intentioned, but I, I get it, and we can, you know, we can share and commiserate together about that, and I get it. I hear you. I got gotcha. you. Okay, what does one talk about on an outreach call? Oh, this is great. I got the best piece of direction from my first sponsor, and here's what she said. And I always tell sponsors this, as I say, first thing you do, so let's say I'm calling Morley. Morley answers the phone and I say, hey, Morley, it's Sheila making an outreach call. Is this a good time for you? This way, if Mar Morley's just about to head out with his, you know, his lovely and they're taking their wonderful dog on a walk or he's got a, he's got, Morley's a, you know, big time meditator. If he's just about to go into meditation, if he's about to have dinner, you know, or if he's wide open on time, he can let me know. There's no pressure. So it immediately takes the pressure. It takes the pressure off them and it takes the pressure off me. And if he says, uh, yeah, sure, Sheila, how are you doing? Then I might say, you know, and again, if, a, if you're not sure what's saying an outreach call, here's always the good default. And that's certainly what my sponsees can say because I require them to make outreach calls is, um, is they it could say, you know, I'm just, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just following sponsor direction. And my sponsor said I should make an outreach call. Do you make outreach calls, Morley? Like oh, that? Yeah. When in default, no, but you know what I mean? Like if I have him on the call, when in default and you don't know what to do, ask a question. You, you, you want to get yourself out of the hot seat in a 12 step situation? Just ask somebody, what do you think about that? Wind us up and let us spin, right? We will spin for you. So that's one thing, right? You can say, I'm just following sponsor direction, or I'm not really sure how to do this, or um, I just read something really cool in the big book. You know, I just, you know, I got turned on to this thing on page 63. Is this, how does this land for you? Or I heard somebody talking about, there's lots of promises in the big book. What are your thoughts about that? Or I heard somebody saying, you know, this person in this works because my sponsor told me read two pages a day in the big book. And then you're going to get through that book in about 10 months. Then when you're done, do it again. When you're done, do it again. When you're done, do it again. Ideally, you end up with a big book, I think, right, for most of us, that ends up looking, right, we want our book to look something like this, right, where you've got highlights and notes in the margin and different things like that. And it becomes a living, breathing organism. It's so exciting. That's what I love about this book. I literally just saw yesterday for the first time in Dr. Bob's story that it's not numbered as one of the ones in the personal stories. It's that important that it doesn't even have a number. It's the, you know, it's the, the number that precedes the number one, which isn't zero, right? It's the first, it's preeminent. That's cool. I never knew that. Like, this is how, this is what's so exciting about this book, right? But these are some of the things you can talk about on outreach calls. What's going on in your program? You know, and you can always talk about the guy, the dog, the, you know, the house on the hill, the whatever, right? Things like that. But, but you can also just lean into the literature or... Um, you know, this is what I'm, I'm wondering about, or I heard this in a workshop, or I am considering doing this, but when in doubt, just default and just say, oh, I'm just checking in. I just wanted to kind of get out of my head. How are you doing? How are you doing, Morley? Fill me in. What's going on in your world, right? That's a great, great way to do it. Excellent question. But I always recommend, like, check with the people and see if it's a good time. This way, if Morley's trying to do any of those things, he says, oh, Sheila, no, I'm sorry. I was just heading out with, with, uh, with my lovely and the dog. And I, no problem. No problem, Morley. I'll catch you another time. See you at the meeting on Thursday. Bye. Right. So I always, I always do that because it, it makes it safe 
for me and I needed to feel safe. Intimacy scares me. Intimacy still scares me. Physical, emotional, and spiritual intimacy still scare me. So I take it gently and easily. Next question then is, uh, was asked, uh, what about the harm reduction model? Also, what about sugar substitutions? Yeah, and what was the first one? Uh, what about harm reduction model? I don't know what harm reduction model is. I don't either, but that's the question. I'm sorry, I can't help you there. Uh, in terms of sugar substitutes, um, it, it just, it, it doesn't work for me. So, you know, that we've all heard that, you know, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, sounds like a duck, it's probably a duck. Um, um, it, it, but it, it just doesn't, and, and again, oh my God, I would just invite, I just, I wish we could get it this way and I wish I could have gotten it this way when I heard this in the beginning, but I'm just, for me, here's the thing for me. I have such a sensitivity to sweet things. And I believe I came out of the shoot this morning. There was something bodily and mentally different about me. And Silkworth talks about that in his story, the allergy of the body, the obsession of the mind. I have an allergy to sugar. That's just the reality. You know, I've got a sister who's allergic to cats. You put her in a room with a cat, she's going to start schnotting and snorting. It's not like if you put her in with a calico, she'll be fine with a calico. But Siamese cats are or tiger cats or, you know, long hair cat, whatever. No, no, no. But a calico should be fine. No, no, no. She's allergic to cats. So I've got a propensity to abuse things when they taste sweet. And it, but it has to, for me, it has to be coupled with fat. I, I, I would never eat a jelly bean unless I can deep fry it. So it has to be sugar coupled with fat for me. But I am particularly sensitive to that. So why would I think that if I eat something that's got artificial sweeteners in it, for instance, right? I'm not even talking about, can, can I make honey work? Answer, no. Can I make agave work? Answer, no. Can I make maple syrup work? Answer, no. Fruit juice sweetened, heavily fruit juice sweetened? No, right? So I already know those things don't work, but let's, let's talk about artificial sweeteners. Let's, let's say, well, maybe I can make that work. Um, have you ever been in an airport in another country when you've eaten copious amounts of sugar-free chocolate and dealt with that trauma? I have. I have. Uh, I have. So... And I, I ate artificially sweetened stuff even after that horrendous experience. But I, I already knew that didn't work. And, and the, the problem is, because again, I had that sensitivity where I like stuff when it's sweet. If I eat something that's artificially sweetened, like artificially sweetened chocolate, and I haven't had that stuff in years, but I mean, if I ate that stuff, it's not like I have one. I don't. That's not how I roll. That's not how I roll. And I don't care that if you eat five of those, you're gonna, it's gonna have the, create the diarrhea effect. I don't care about that. I'm not thinking about that stuff. That's the pathology, that's the disease. I don't think about that stuff, right? The, the, the three lies. If I really, if I really believe what 
the doctor Silkworth tells me in the doctor's opinion, and I really believe Bill's story. My friend Chris from Canada talked to me about this, told me this years ago, and I love it. If I really believe those things, I can only eat on a lie today. If I really believe those two chapters, I can only eat on a lie today. And there are three lies. The first lie, it's not going to bother me this time. The sugar-free chocolate won't bother me this time. Second lie, it's going to bother me, but I'll be able to control it. That's the one that had me captured for the dozen years. I knew I was powerless, but I thought, sure, I could control it this time. That was the lie for me. And the third lie is, well, my life has no value. I might as well eat myself to death. So, um, so artificial sweeteners or the, you know, you know going to the, the, even the natural stuff, you know, agave, I mean, it's all natural. Sugarcane is natural, right? But um, it's more, all of it's more natural than artificial sweeteners, but it just doesn't work for me because it, 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 it activates that, that, that obsession of the mind, the obsession of the mind, which is never going to go away anyway, but I can't, I can't have that on my palate. And there's enough sweet things I can have, you know, it's, it's fall. There are great grapes. There are great apples that are, that are happening, you know, a, a peach in Georgia um, in, in July, right? I mean, there, there are enough sweet things, pineapple, Hawaiian pineapple. There's enough sweet things I can have. And I, you know, I, I've, I've done my quota of, of sugar and I'll, you know, sometimes be at, you know, celebration events and, you know, somebody's having cake and, and they'll say, oh, you can't eat cake. I'm sorry. You can't eat birthday cake. I'm so sorry. And I say, oh, you know, don't, don't trust me. Don't cry for me, Argentina. I've had my quota of sugar. I've had my quota, your quota, his quota, her quota, uh, that person's quota, you know, in Arcadia, I've, I've had my quota. So um, it doesn't work for me. And maybe it'll work for you. It doesn't work for me. I even, I had to stop chewing artificial, uh, you know, sugarless gum. Cause I was just, I almost got locked jaw. I was chewing so much gum, you know, I'd chew a piece for about three minutes, five minutes. And then I, you know, put a new piece in to get the sweet. It just doesn't work for me anyway. So that's me. Sorry. I went on too long on that, but yeah, that's, I feel strongly about that one. Um, Pat S, do you have some questions for Sheila? I do. Uh, yeah. we we, hi, Sheila. Thank you. Uh, I've gotten this question from uh, several people, and it says, uh, can we please post Sheila's info? Sure. Oh, yes. Yeah. Go ahead and put my, my phone number and my email, and yes, you most definitely can. And, you know, do be conscious, and sometimes, you know, just be patient with me in terms of getting phone calls, you know, back to people and things. But yeah, sure. Be in touch. And what I always say to people and that, you know, I, I don't know if I can drop the S-bomb here, but I always say, and yeah, for sure, call me because when I forget all this shit, you can remind me, right? Because that's what we do for each other, right? We do that for each other. I forget, you remind me. You forget, I remind you. We're all in this together, right? So yes, yes and yes and yes. Okay, great. Uh, uh, one other question was, did Sheila say the obsession of the mind never goes away? Uh, well, uh, I didn't say that. Uh, uh, Silkworth says that it's the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. So it's not an it's not an urban myth. An allergy, literally, I you know I was dealing with a major allergy ten years ago and went and saw this mucky muck allergist here in Los Angeles. And it's not an urban myth. Uh, you get twenty one days off something, and physiologically, it's out of your system. But what Silkworth talks about is the obsession of the mind, which never goes away. 
right? That's why we say you go to meetings and you will continue to sponsor. You know, we've all had that. You know, every day I wake up with untreated alcoholism. Every day I wake up with untreated uh, compulsive overeatingism, right? Every day I always wake up and think, I wonder if a hot fudge Sunday would work today, right? Um, every day that's going to happen. But then I'm going to make an outreach call to Pat and she's going to remind, hey, Pat, it's Sheila making an outreach call. You got a minute? Yeah, sure. What's up? You know, I'm just thinking, can I, do you think a hot fudge Sunday would work today? Uh, maybe not today, Sheila, but probably on Tuesday. Call me Tuesday, right? So she'll remind me of that. So yeah, that, that, that obsession of the mind. And again, Silkworth is the one who talks about that. And then it gets uh, corroborated also by Carl Jung, right? That that's when they talk about the vital spiritual experience. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to this at another point because it, it'll come up somewhere. We'll talk about the vital spiritual experience, which is referenced on page uh, 29. It's the same thing. And that's Carl Jung talking about that is the same thing as the psychic change. Um, no, the, the, yeah, no, the psychic changes on a Roman numeral page 29 in the doctor's opinion is the same thing as the vital spiritual experience, which Carl Jung is talking about on page 27 in uh, There is a Solution. Those are the same things. 1114. What's that? 1114. Thanks, Morley. And so, yeah, and we might, and I think that's, that's it because we are going to be taking a break. So, um, so yeah, so if there's more questions and you and I, we can all, you know, you can be in touch with me and we can, we can be in the flow together and get, you know, provide questions and answers to one another as we're, as we're, you know, doing this together, right? Remember, because there are, there are no authorities here. And if, and if you want to, if you want to know, if you want to really, you know, dive into the big book and you, if you want to go to a big book study, go to a big book study, but you don't need to go to a big book study study the big book, right? Just, just embrace it and love it, right? And now we've got a 15 minute break. Well, you can do it on your break. Anyway, I'll see you in 15. We'll come back at 1130 and get going again. <laughs>